from the Film Society of Lincoln Center, you're listening to The Close-Up. This week, we welcomed acclaimed writer and artist Dennis Cooper and his collaborator Zach Farley to premiere their new film, Permanent Greenlight. Last night, Cooper joined director of programming Dennis Lim for an extended onstage discussion exploring his singular body of work, his rich relationship with cinema, and the new film. The evening was punctuated by clips chosen by Cooper to show his influences. As we join the conversation, he is explaining why he chose the first clip. Uh, the first one is a is a very short clip, which is the ending of uh, John Huston's uh, Reflections in a Golden Eye. And I chose it because I saw it when I was like 15 or 16, and it was the first time I ever saw a film. I the first time I realized that film could be could go crazy and do uh, could end it's the ending of the film and it could end chaotically and inconclusively and things and this was like a huge revelation for me because I had before then only seen like shitty films and had never thought about it and the second one is a scene from uh, Orson Welles Magnificent Ambersons which uh, I also saw when I was really young and which at the time I saw it and I still think it's the greatest uh scene or moment in all of film and uh yeah okay we'll roll the clips so let's uh let's talk a little bit more about the the john houston um film the whole film is like pretty like gothic and overheated anyway but this ending is memorably crazy um and yeah well the whole film's tinted gold yeah (laughs) yeah uh, so what, I mean, you remember this as a very, like, sort of formative viewing experience. Yeah, because, like I said, I just, I had never really, I, I just thought movies were just fun or whatever. I had never thought about movies as being, like, an art form or, like, something, you know, that wasn't just a predictable, pleasure-giving thing. And then I went to see this movie because I heard that it was... Uh, weird and gay had gay stuff in it so that's why i went and uh and it was just it was just i'd never seen anything like it it's like a it's very over the top and melodramatic and it's all gold and everything i was kind of interested in it but then this ending it's hard to see without the whole film because you sit through this really long film that's really kind of like strange and a mess and kind of overly cerebral and stuff and then suddenly Mahler and just walks in this room and shoots Robert Forster and and then the camera just does that thing where it goes back and forth and then it just fades out and um I don't know it just it's just being the age I was which is like 15 or 16 it just I just couldn't believe that a film like a real film could do something like that I'd never seen like the camera move like that or like the camera like that the film could just take over and this the aesthetics of the film would just like and that the story just becomes like secondary to kind of what the the film did and and that it could end just completely chaotically like that like there's no ending it just ends with confusion and and oddness and mm. so that was just it just I'd never seen anything like that so it just kind of blew me completely away to see that you, a films could do something like that so like how does this map over your sort of discovery of you know literature like interesting literature literature that's important to you because i've heard you talk about that also as like you know you were reading you said before this you were you know watching whatever trashy movies or movies that were just entertainment and you had described um literature what you were reading that way too until you discovered i think it was rambo and french poetry and french literature so at what stage was that was it around the same time yeah it was all around the same time 
uh, I think I saw. Um, yeah, I just read. I I only used to read um, novelizations of television shows. That was what I was obsessed with, like Batman and Man from Uncle, and all these shows that were popular then. And then I um, just because I was I read an interview with Bob Dylan in Rolling Stone or something, and he said he mentioned Arthur Rimbaud, and I said, oh, Arthur Rimbaud. So I bought it, and then that was completely mind blowing to me because he was you know my age and writing all this visionary stuff and you know, promoting, you know, a completely visionary anarchic life and stuff. And all that just, that completely just, I just couldn't believe it. And so that, then from him, I just started in, obsessively when I, when I was a teenager reading French poetry like Baudelaire and, you know, and then Genet and just, just I was just began consuming that stuff. And then I Saad, who was very important to me. And, uh, and then around the same time, also film. So it was just this awakening to me of, that you could actually, I don't know, because I'd always written, I wrote like just terrible, since I was a kid, I wrote these terrible poems and stories and stuff. And it just, I don't know, it just made me want to do that, you know, the usual thing. It made me want to be an artist. And then I wanted to be a visionary and, you know, experimental monster guy. So um, so this seeing reflections in a golden eye, like what does that do for your relationship to film? Like what kind, does it change the kinds of films you seek out? Do you start reading like film criticism? I mean, this is like the late 60s. Yeah. Um, so like, you know, it's like Andrew Saris and Jonas Mikas and Pauline Kael are publishing. And I mean, it's a pretty like healthy period for a lot of cinema, really, like world cinema and, and American cinema too. So what, what happens after this? Um. I don't think I found. I don't think I started reading criticism until much later. It took me a while to get there, to find that stuff, because, because um, you know, I mean, I, I, I had no, I had no contact with that stuff, but um, I had a, uh, some friends in school, especially this one friend of mine who was a lot like me, and he was ex he was really really interested in experimental music and, you know, John Cage and things like that, Morton Sabotnik and. So we sort of like ganged up together and started exploring everything. So from this, we started going to see, you know, all those films of the late 60s that you would go see, like Antonioni and Bergman and Fellini, and because that stuff was playing. And so we would just get in our car, or borrow our parents' car, and drive down and watch those films. And then I just got completely obsessed with that stuff. And I had no, I sort of lost all interest in sort of pop kind of mainstream films and stuff. Cause, but I and I, I don't even. The only thing I could, only film I can even remember ever going to before that period was, I went, um, I went to see a movie because the Three Stooges were there in person. So I went to see a Three Stooges movie. Yeah. Um, and the Magnificent Ambersons. When, when did you see that? And Similar time, a little after. And yeah, that just I mean I'm I really really like Wells, and uh, and again that was beyond the. Reflections and Golden Eye. I just that film, Magnificent Emerson, especially was really powerful. It's just that I don't that scene just really stayed with me because it's doing so many things at once. That's what I, I really loved about it. It's so multiplicitous. It's like sent really sentimental and and yet it's it's very cruel and um, and uh, mocking. But it's also not. I don't know. It's cruel in a way that's not cheap or something. And then just the idea of like. Now having this moment where this, you know he has his most profound thoughts and he just goes through this science class, sixth grade science class idea of of creation, and then and then that the thing that kills me is just that and then Orson Welles just blacks him out. You know, it's like right. 
the end. And it's like that the film, again, like I said, it's just that the idea that the, the film could make a decision like that and could just like crush him, you know, mm-hmm. it just, I don't know. It just, I just, it made me want to make art. Cause I, I've always been really, really interested in, in how art, I always want my, my writing and stuff to do as much as the story or the content. I always want the, it's always important to me that the writing is doing a huge amount of the work and stuff. And so it just kind of, kind of made me understand that you could do that. Mm-hmm. When you sent us your list of films, I was really struck by the, the choice of these two. I mean, you know, I, a lot of your work is is experimental, formal. You know, both in in, in your writing and in your filmmaking. Um, and and so, but to have you choose these like two classical Hollywood guys, like John Huston and Orson Welles, I was no. like, is is are you, is classical Hollywood like kind of something that you like a lot? Is it like are you steeped in it in, in any way or? No, not really. Yeah. No, those are just. Those were just standouts to me. Mm. No, I mean, you know, I mean, I was interested in what was happening in Hollywood film to a certain point, but I, I was never interested in like film history or anything. I wasn't, I was always really interested in what was happening in that moment. So, you know, like I was watching, you know, whatever Sam Peckinpah or something that was what right. was interesting to me. Right. Um, so let's move on. Um, Cause we have a few clips to get through. Um, should we do the Frampton next? What do you want to do, do to the Bresson? It's, it's you. Let's do the Frampton. So. Okay. okay. This is, which is a, since a very, very different type of film, uh, Hollis Frampton. Yeah, this was just, um, I got, Los Angeles was really, I was in a group in Los Angeles and there was, and there was um, at that time a really strong, uh, it was a, there was a venue, um, or a couple of venues where they showed experimental film and experimental and abstract film uh, that was going on at that time and and you would go and they would usually have the filmmakers there and so I used to go and my friend and I got obsessed of just going to see every every week or every two weeks however they showed them so I saw like Stan Brackage and you know Hollis Frampton and you know just all those guys would come and show their films and this is like in the late 60s and early 70s and I was really 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 taken with it just really and I was I was also I was already pretty I was predisposed in a bit because I was really interested. I'd always been really interested in psychedelic music, and also I was doing a lot of psychedelics, and that probably helped too. But um, Paulus Frampton particularly interested me because he was doing. When I was fifteen, I just when I decided I was going to write this great project, this avant-garde, gigantic project, which ended up being my, the George Mile Cycle, my first five books, and um, I was really really interested in that idea of writing some huge project that you would commit your life to and just do this massive thing. And he was, Hal Sarantin at that time was doing, had an idea to do this film that was called um, Magellan or something. And um, it was going to be 36 hours long. And uh, he died before, I think he only got 12 hours before he died. But he would he would come to Los Angeles occasionally and show the latest clips. And they, none of them ever connected up in any way I'd ever seen. And they were just so strange. and and exciting to me and so i just picked um a clip this is a clip that was uh, a short piece they're all in small pieces this is a piece of what of the magellan film that he never finished so thought i'd show it okay we'll show the frampton now so at, at the time you discover work like this you know frampton brackage um these sort of experimental structural filmmakers like what's going on with with your work are you is this the period where you're writing poetry uh, yeah, I mean, um, mostly at that point I was trying to write fiction. Um, 
I wrote poetry, but I really wanted to write these novels, right? But, uh, but I was extremely, extremely, extremely bad and had no skills. So I would get very frustrated because, yeah, it was really, I mean, you know, as bad as you would imagine a 16-year-old who wanted to be Rambo would be. And, um, and so I was working on both. Yeah, and eventually I ended up doing poetry more in a present way and because I got a little bit better at poetry. So, But I was, most, I was thinking about fiction mostly. Hmm. You know, I, I'm not sure really how we, to, I mean, to talk about this, um, but, but I'm curious about this question of, of formalism and how it translates from like one medium to another because I feel like you're somebody who draws a lot from the formalism of like non-literary forms. Yeah. Yeah. in some ways, but yeah. then you're also very much like a literary formalist. Um, and I can see, you know, some of these, like, s s I, I can see that, like yeah, Frampton yeah, in yeah, your yeah. work, you know, so I'm wondering how yeah. how something like that is absorbed by, you know, a, a, young, a younger you and like sort of becomes writing. Well, I mean, at the time I was, I was trying to do really, really experimental fiction that it like was as experimental as Hollis Frampton, so. Yeah. So there'd be you know repetitions of things that were recognizable, and then a lot of a lot of rhythm and a lot of just kind of like effects. And I was very interested in the rhythm of it, of like for instance that. So, but but um, something I realized like at some point was that I really have to have this kind of emotional thing in it for me. I can't I can't just do abstract work. So so I had to I started having to realize I had to have some kind of narrative and some kind of emotional pull otherwise I just not, wasn't interested enough and there was nothing there of me so but but I always I mean I most of the stuff I think I I honestly think most of the things I most of the influences I have that have been really important have been other than writers and you know like, like I said when I was watching all those experimental films that was very important and certainly and music too um, the, uh, I always I'm always studying other mediums trying to trying to find things because fiction is very very slow and most fiction, you know, barring, you know, European fiction and French fiction, you know, which is the stuff I really love, the kind of visionary writing, you know, like Guillotard and stuff like that, is is really based in plot and character and the character's journey and psychological development. I don't like any of that stuff. That's all. I just employ that stuff to kind of use as a grab or something. So, so it was hard to find things in literature that were, that were really helpful. You know, I mean, you, you could get it from like, yes, people like Burroughs or something. You could get a little bit, but so so then it was more. It was easy to. It was better to look at um, film and look at music and things because they had a different requirements. I mean, it was like the the thing that you know. I mean, I guess there's the pop song, and then you go, go from the pop song to you know whatever metal machine music or autech mm -hmm. or something and um but i i just felt like it was like, it's such a different structure the structures they used were so different and the expectations were so different and the formalism was a completely different kind of formalism than f fiction you know, with the repetition and the choruses and things and i just was always trying to find a way to do that in, in my writing just to i don't know i guess i appeal those appealed to me so much more because i'd never studied fiction i just did it myself and and I didn't want to use those those structures like plot and all that stuff. So so I was trying to find a way to use to use what do it the way they did it because it was much more appealing to me. Right. Were there um, you, you talked about the, the French sort of literary influences? Like were there experimental writers that were important to you? Other than you, you mentioned Burroughs, but like was there anybody else you were reading at the time? Oh. 
Yeah, I mean, I was reading everything I get my hands on. So I read, I mean, and, and mostly I was interested in, in European fiction, you know, like, so mm -hmm. yeah, Genet and Roussel and, um, but, you know, a lot of it hadn't been translated yet. So, I mean, like Bataille had, and Blanchot, who were, Blanchot was especially really important to me, but he wasn't really translated into English until like the 80s. So, you know, Celine and just anything that was like that would be really exciting to me and poetry a lot because poetry was, wasn't moored with all that stuff so so yeah i could read you know uh, polonaire or whoever mm -hmm. and and kind of that kind of stuff so but there and there were some americans i mean you know there was some americans and i i was really interested in metafiction you know so john barth and and uh, all those guys because they were at least trying to do something unusual but, but american fiction just doesn't it's extremely there's you know you can count in one hand the people before recently that were actually really trying to do something kind of visionary mm -hmm. You talk about just you know this uh, idea of formalism, like but an abstraction that but you also needed like this emotional component. Like with these experimental films of that period, do you, did you find that there was an emotional component for some of these films, or, or were you more drawn to them as like formal experiences? I think I was most interested in them as just I was studying them, so the formal stuff, but. But there, but I suppose I mean, but there are I mean, I, there's something emotional about that. Sure. The yeah. calls Frampton, yeah. and and there's something emotional about Brackage, for instance, and and and, and in a weird way, even in people like Kuch the Kachars and stuff, there's like some kind of strange thing. So I did really like when I saw that because it then because then I could because I was trying to do both, and it was it was very interesting when you when you found them together. But at the same time, I mean, um, you know. I mean, it wasn't. It was. I was mostly just studying it, just looking for formal stuff that I could learn from. So, so I guess that was what mostly what I was paying attention to. But, but the introduction of that stuff into when it was there in film, and then you know, and I liked you know, I liked um, you know, uh, you know, Rene and all those guys, and they they obviously had more of that kind of stuff in them. The right. more kind of you know, Antonioni and things they they dealt with that stuff. So. So you know all the people we were talked about are these experimental avant-garde like filmmakers of a certain period. I'm wondering if you is this still an area of cinema that you're interested in that you keep up with? Because yeah, yeah, yeah super interested. Any any recent experimental works that you're well, well we're gonna we're gonna talk about James Benning later, but who's well, there's still a no, there's a there's a whole kind of I think there's kind of a renaissance of young experimental filmmakers and there's a whole, and there's a lot of journals and things that actually cover that work i mean i just recently uh, got to know um, scott barley i mean his he's a good example of someone doing that and he's involved with these he has a kind of group of these filmmakers he's involved with who are like in canada and south america and things and they're they're doing really abstract and very experimental film and yeah you know, I, th i think there's actually something really happening there and i i'm very very interested in that work yeah. watching something like the frampton i actually think of uh a little bit of like your this is a bit of a detour to the present as your GIF novels, yeah, in a way. Yeah, that, um, that, I was thinking that when I saw that too. In uh, in terms of like just yeah, can can you? I don't know if everybody's read your uh, GIF novels. Maybe you want to talk a little bit about um, what you've been working on lately and what, why why you decided to do that because it's such it's essentially a form that you invented. I guess so. <laughs> so. Um, yeah, yeah. I wrote this novel, the last novel I wrote that was called Marbled Swarm, and I was extremely happy with it. Um, it's like, I think it's my best book. And um, it, I was able to do all these things in it that I never, I'd always wanted to do. And, but what, every time I finish a novel, I always like have to sort of, I always have always kind of destroyed my voice and started anew. And so 
I was going to do that. But at the same time, there was something about the, what I was able to do with the Marble Swarm that I wanted to continue with, but I didn't want to use that voice. I thought that voice, I'd really maxed out what that voice I could do that I used. And I just kind of stumbled into this thing of making fiction using animated, animated GIFs. I just came upon it accidentally, kind of, because I have this blog, and I was really interested. I like animated GIFs, and I was stacking them up on just like a thematically, you know, like chandelier, and then I'd have like 50 chandelier ones. And, and I started to notice these things that were happening between them, these really interesting accidental kind of formal things, and so I started deliberately working with them. And at some point, I, I realized like that I was actually writing fiction, and it was exactly the same as writing written fiction. I mean, I was using exactly the same principles I did. And it was, I got really excited and I'm still excited about it because, because I'm really, because I'm really interested in like getting rid of that stuff I don't like, you know? And if you use animated GIFs, I mean, I use found animated GIFs. I mean, you literally cannot put plot and character and stuff on the surface because it's just impossible. So that's, you can make that stuff, but it's really deep and, and, um, and, it, and it puts everything kind of on the same plane. So yeah, I started making these novels and they're, they're like books and they have paragraphs and everything, but they, they have animated GIFs that are kind of combined into groups. And uh, yeah, I, I, I've done four of them, two novels and two books of short fiction. And uh, I mean, I, th I really think they are novels. I know that people don't, but um, because I literally like, I write them like novels. They're really written ex like novels. So yeah, that's been huge. And were you thinking of like structural and experimental film when you were doing them? I wasn't. I was trying really, really hard not to think of visual art because it's my. I really don't want them to be visual art because I'm not a visual artist. And I wasn't trying to think about film. I was really, literally trying to think only about fiction. I was really like making myself do that. So. I think there are things that come in, you know, that, that, that came in from this stuff, that work. But no, I mean, I was really, really, really thinking this is fiction and only thinking it about it as fiction. I, I mean, when I, later on after I started making them, I started realizing that a, I think a lot of some of the, thing, the basic things I was doing in them came from John Baldessari because I was mm -hmm. really a big fan of John Baldessari's work in the 70s and 80s. And I suddenly realized like, oh, I think this is really somehow the root of my interest in this. One thing you said last night that was striking to me was that, you know, in terms of like the division of labor between you and Zach on, on, on the films in terms of writing and on the set, you said that you have a hard time visualizing narrative, um, which isn't, which, you know, you've done these gift novels, which are, even though you say you're not a visual artist, that there is certainly like a, a visual sensibility at work. And I think your work is, resides like, it's so close adjacent to like visual art tropes and devices in a way that I'm... Wondering why you feel like you have a hard time as a screenwriter and filmmaker, like you know, that the, the visualizing of the narrative is, is something that you are not. I just don't. With. I mean, I don't know why. I mean, I, I mean, I, um, I try, and I, I, I try to think about. I mean, when I'm writing the the scripts with Zach, I mean, I'm I'm thinking about it as a film. I'm thinking about how mm -hmm. it'll be visualized, but I, I literally just cannot do it. I can't think of like this scene should be this long and this cut it should be this angle, and I can't do that. I just I don't know why. It's just I don't have that in my brain. So Zach has to do that. <laughs> okay, let's do the next clip. Uh, this is a Brisson film. Uh, maybe not the Brisson film everybody's expecting, but. Uh, <laughs> Uh, yeah, yeah. Robert Bresson. When I saw Robert Bresson's uh, films, that like changed my whole life, and he's like the most important artist to me. And, and I wanted to show Bresson clip because of that. And um, the first Bresson film I ever saw was Lancelot du Lac, which is kind of a funny one for him because it's a period piece and it's not what he usually does. But uh, it's the one that made me kind of just go, "Oh my God!" You know, I have seen it. 
you know, it, it is, that is it. And it exists in that. I don't need to see anything else kind of thing. But there's this one scene in Lancelot du Lac, which is, um, it's a, it's a, it's a medieval one. It's like King Arthur and shit. And there's this jousting scene and the way he shoots, that's what I'm going to show you is this jousting scene. The way he shoots it is just so wrong. And so it's so mechanical and, I just drives me crazy. So I want to, and I thought it might be a good way to look at how he, how his films are structured. Because if you try to show a Bresson film, you'd have to, I'd have to show you like you know, forty minutes for you to get get the kind of Bresson thing. But it, you get it consolidated into this scene, I think. Okay, we're gonna roll the clip. I think it's a. <laughs> I'm glad you picked that clip. It's. Uh, I think it really does convey like the fundamental strangeness of Bresson's style. <laughs> Yeah. Um, that that particular clip. Yeah. Um, I I was was rereading the uh, interview that you did with the Paris Review um, some years ago, where you said uh, when you discovered Bresson's films, you 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 found the final ingredient you needed to write fiction. Yeah. So, can you? What was that ingredient? Oh, that's hard. Well, you know, I mean, um, I was trying to write. I mean, and I, and I guess. I did write about like really, really kind of difficult things. Um, the access of sex and violence as a way to access kind of really confused and inexpressible emotion and things like that. That's kind of been a key for me. And uh, I could never really figure out how to do it because I didn't, because I didn't, um, nothing, I mean, nothing really, um, uh, I wasn't able to find a register that I, that was, I felt comfortable in. You know, because I'm not interested in sadism or masochism or any of that kind of stuff. Right? And um, so I was just trying and trying and trying. And then Bresson, I know there was just, when I saw that, I was just the kind of, um, I mean, there are just a million things. It's hard because there's so many things about it that affected me, but just the, the um, and it really isn't so much in that clip, but just kind of the opacity of the characters, but they're just all emotion and it's inaccessible. And, and, um, and he only uses non-actors, and um, and so they're like not worthy of the roles or something. And I I, I always wanted to write novels where the characters weren't in, were not strong enough to be characters and things like. There were so many ways in which which I uh, and the flatness of it, like that was flat but deep. And so there are just many 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 things about it that just it just clicked. It was just like oh this is. This is how I can do this. If I can really figure out how to do what Bresson did and apply it to what I'm doing, then then I think I can do this thing I want to do. So, so you saw this film not long after it came came out. This is from 1974, I think. Um, I saw it, it. It was a little bit later than that, but I, I saw it at Filmex, which was this film mm -hmm. festival. It was a great film festival, mm -hmm. but it wasn't. Um, I don't think it was brand new. So, because I it wasn't so long after that that I saw The Devil Probably, which was the one that was really important to me, but. Yeah, so it was in the late, it was in the mid 70s. Was yeah, it might have been 74. It could have been 74. Um, it's interesting you picked this, uh, you know, and I, as somebody, I, I also think late Bresson is like genuinely great Bresson. And yeah. I mean, I'm not sure if everybody agrees with that. I mean, Susan Sontag said, you know, a lot of the like really canonical important writing on Bresson actually happened like. Right. At the turn of the 60s, early 70s, like Susan Sontag and Paul Schrader, and like that was as he was making the switch to to color, and you know, um, Susan Sontag actually said like she could not imagine a Bresson film in color, and like I think like his greatest films are yeah. the, are the ones in, in color. Yeah, me too. Um, and um, so, do you want to say a bit about the Devil? Probably as 
and you you have I mean you've written about this I guess but and I remember the piece that you wrote in I think it was Art Forum after he died right. um, and you said I think you wrote to him I did write to him what, what did you tell uh, him I, yeah I, I was really into him and then I saw this film The Devil Probably which is my favorite film and and um, if you've ever seen it and you know my work you would understand why that is <clears throat> and uh, and I just was like I don't know just kind of like I don't know I don't think I ever recovered from seeing it and um, and I become just obsessed with I wanted to work with him and I wanted to learn from him and you know so I wrote letters to him I found an address for him and wrote letters to him and saying please 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 I will like sweep the floors of your sets I will do anything if you will just let me come turns out he didn't speak English so <laughs> that didn't didn't happen. But yeah, I just wrote a bunch of letters and I really was just like, I promise I'll be really quiet and I'll just like stand over in the corner and I just want to watch you work and extremely long, passionate, insane letters that you know that no one would ever respond to. So yeah, I tried, but it didn't work. Yeah. And then from those two films, you, you went back and watched all the others? Yeah. Yeah, they, I mean, they weren't that easy to, you know, there wasn't At the time, yeah. DVDs and things. So, yeah, no, I eventually saw everything. Yeah, yeah, and then I kept, you know, I, I went forward. I saw, you know, Los Angeles and stuff. So, but yeah, I, I ended up just get, seeing them all somehow and, I don't know, I guess video or something. I don't know. You, um, is is his book, his legendary book, Notes on Cinematography, important to yeah, you? I think you, you yeah. use an, a quote from it. Um, yeah. I think it's an epigraph in Try. Yeah. Um, something about concealment, right? I think it's about what yeah, the actor is. Exactly something about the act, what the actor yeah. gives you is not what they. Yeah. The, is, is what they the hide. The thing that's uh, important is not what they show you. But what they hide. Or what they don't. Or what they hide. But they don't you, know but what they do not suspect is in them. Yeah. Yeah. I mean that's that's key, and that's even you could even that's even key to Zach's of my films, even though. Mm -hmm. you know, so, sure. Are there other things from that book? Because, I mean, that I also like reread that book recently, and it's like, it's kind of amazing. It's like kind of like the best one of the best film theory, the most the best and most readable like film theory book like ever written in a way, you know. But but it's uh, like what other are there other things that you've you've taken from it? And uh, yeah, I haven't I haven't looked at it in quite a while. So I mean, I I would just yeah, I, I mean, I studied it and memorized it at some point. So I mean, I mean, I mean, there was nothing in it that didn't really didn't hit home with me it was just it's just about i just use it as a kind of manual to think about how to make characters and how to make work and things because i disagreed with everything he said so so um we're going to jump ahead and show one more clip because um i want to leave time for some audience questions as well and we'll take some questions after the next clip um which is um a clip that you're in so yeah. if you want to set this up uh yeah, I just thought that it would be like amusing or something. If I showed you the clip, it's like the only acting job I ever had. And it was in uh, French director Christophe Honoré. He made this film called Man at Bath. In English, it's called Man at Bath. And um, he, I knew him a little bit um, but at that point. And he asked me if I would play a part in his film. It's an improvised film. Uh, um, and... Uh, so yeah, it's all improvised. Uh, and he asked me to play this part, which was, um, it's set in the suburbs of Paris, and the part I play is um, this guy who lives in this is, is, lives in a housing project in the suburbs of Paris, and I collect art, uh, really bad art, but it's not supposed to be bad, I think. 
and that, that and then the French the you know this French porn story is very famous in Europe at least named Francois Sagat is the person I'm in the scene with and he plays this young guy who comes up to me occasionally to have sex with me for money and um, so and um, Christophe wanted me to play this scene and it, it was improvised although I he told me kind of basically what he wanted me to do what the scene would be like and he told me he wanted me to really shock Francois Sagat because John Scott comes for, comes to me for asking for sex, and then, this isn't in the clip. But just before this other boy leaves my apartment, and I found a new boy, and I'm not interested in John Scott anymore, and so I kind of I have to re I reject him, and he wanted me to be really to really really get Francois Scott upset, which because Francois Scott is not an expressive person, so and you, he wasn't very expressive in this either. Believe me, he was really up really really angry at me. Um, and still, when I see him in Paris, he looks at me like he wants to kill me, um, because I, I call him on some things that he's very self-conscious about. Um, and so, <laughs> so anyway, that's the scene, and uh, and I, it's improvised, but I did like kind of make notes and have a kind of idea in my head. So, but Francois did, did not know what I was going to do. So, and this is this is the scene. So that was improvised. Yeah, except for he told me to say. Uh, I bet your fiance loves Charles Aznavour. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't. I didn't. Uh, that wasn't me. Like how many? How many times did you shoot that scene? Huh? How many times did you shoot the scene? Three times. Three yeah. times. Okay. But I think that's the first one. He wanted to. Oh, the Francois stuff is all first take because. Right. He wanted Francois to be really pissed off. So. <laughs> yeah. But he might have used for the close-ups of me. They might have been like later or something. So I had to like. Right. They're slightly different every time I said it. Um, we're actually showing Christophe Honoré's new film in the New York Film Festival in a few weeks. Um, very different yeah. kind of film uh, <laughs> from this one. Um, but, uh, you know, it's, I just wanted to ask you too about just um, being in France and, you know, working in France now and making a French film. And um, when, when did you move there? 2004. I mean, I didn't. I wasn't. I didn't intend to move there. I thought I would just be there for a while, but I got kind of just. I liked being there, and so I just ended up staying. Did you find the conversation about your work is different there, or like just how it's framed? And uh, yeah, I mean, it's like um, I don't get like I don't get the like you're like a you know like a sadistic horrible boy fucking monster over there. Mm -hmm. They see <laughs> what I do as being part of a tradition. I mean, it's like you know they don't. That doesn't mean they like it. But I mean, you know, it's not like I'm like a really big, hugely successful artist in France. But but they don't they don't do that. You know, they critique the they'll they'll critique it based on whatever what usually what I intend it to be critiqued about instead of just saying you know that I'm a monster or something. So I wanted to just make sure we have some. Uh, we're gonna we have one more clip, which is what we're gonna end with. Um, but I wanted to. Just make sure that we have some time to take some audience questions. So if anybody would like to ask Janice anything about anything, really, um, uh, we can take a couple. This is relatively trivial um, in certain respects. But you said that there are, there are um, a handful of visionary writers. I don't know if it was in American or in English language literature. No, I just mean that that's like it's not a tradition in American fiction 
to to be really um, to abandon all of the structures, the the kind of mainstream or conventional structures of fiction. So yeah, I mean, I mean, Burroughs, Kathy Acker, uh, who else? I'm probably blanking. Um, not many. That's the only two I can think of at the moment. I mean, now there's different. I mean, there's some younger writers who are doing it. There's some younger writers who are doing some really wild stuff. Um, but uh, yeah, but that's still metafiction. It's still like kind of yeah. I mean, cheaper by Irving Rosenthal. He only wrote one book that was like that. You know. But it's just not it's just not a tradition here. It's just like it's not there's no history of it. So other than that's why um so that's why when when I started publishing books it was always just like the new Burroughs. It was like because there was nobody else to even even though I write nothing like Burroughs. So so I don't know. But there's a lot of a lot of really interesting, very daring work being done by younger writers right now. But I can't think of others. I'm probably just blanking, though. So we're going to show um, a clip from Dennis and Zach's uh, first collaboration, like Cattle Towards Glow, which we talked a little bit about in the Q&A uh, last night. But if you want to just set up how how this film came about, how your collaboration <coughs> with Zach came about. And um, yeah, this film, that, that, that was a, uh, the, copy, the movie is called like Cattle Towards Glow. It originated... Mm, few, three or four years before we actually made it as a porn film because I'd always wanted to write a porn film because I thought that I could make a really visionary and great porn film and uh, and somebody heard me say that it was in the porn industry and said oh I can I can help you make that I can get it financed and Falcon or somebody can will put it out or something could you, could you say a bit more about that about why you wanted to make a, a what was it about pornography well I've always been really interested in pornography it. it's like sure, it's one of the things I study and I think because it represents sex, because the way you represent sex, I'm interested in how sex is represented in different ways. And so yeah, no, I mean, I just. But was there something that specific that you you know would want to do in a porn? Yeah, film I want to do like a you know challenge like a, the maybe the the language of, of porn. Or, yeah, I just I just felt like it was really un, I just felt like it was there had it it was this medium that no one had ever really exploited. There was like kind of experimental porn I don't know straight porn I only know gay porn. So but there was kind of um uh there was kind of some experimental gay porn in the 70s and things but it was really know, not very good and um i just had this idea that like nobody's ever done this and i can do it i mean i'm gonna you know i'm gonna make the you know the citizen kane of porn and and all this and it's just like ripe for that and i just went on and on about that for a while and then somebody finally heard me so so i did or he said he said i said well what what's the rules and he said um oh anything you want just do anything you want i'll get it made so i wrote this very very strange porn film that had um there were all kinds of scenarios that were too weird and the sex wasn't sexy i was it had pornographic sex in it but the sex wasn't erotic and so he just said no i can't do this so that was the end of that but then years later this this producer jürgen bruning in germany who's best known for making bruce labruce's films he heard about this somehow and he he said wrote to me and he said i'd be interested in looking at this script at that point, I was collaborating with Zach, and we were working on projects. And I just said to Zach, um, "Do you would you be interested in doing this with me?" And he said, "Yeah." So he read the script, and and we both thought there were a lot of problems with the script. So we revised the script, and then we sent it to Jurgen. And he said, "Oh, I'll make it." 
so we did. And then he raised money, which turned out to be $40,000, which was very, very little. Um, which so that's from start to finish. So we just, it was, it just seemed like a um, situation where we could do whatever we want. It's like a film. It's in, it still has this, it has five, it's five sections. Each section has different characters, different performers, different storyline. They all connect th- up kind of thematically through the, the, the idea that the, ce- the center of it is, a, is, is sex or sex act or, uh, wanting to have a sex act or something, and but the 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 sex is is not presented as sexy, and um, and then we just got more and more complicated about it, and we um, we have the way it was cast was um, a friend of ours who's actually the casting director for Christophe Honoré because Christophe Honoré was one of the producers of the film, whose film you just saw. He did this thing called wild casting, and which is basically he went around to nightclubs at three in the morning and the metro and he just would see guys and say like you know do you want to be in a movie like, oh, okay so then we had all these guys come over and we cast it and we um they'd never been in anything before or they'd never acted or anything like that before most of them weren't even in that area at all and also a lot of them did not speak english very well at all in the la- in the t- the film is in english and the dialogue is kind of complicated and elliptical and we wanted that to be we wanted them to not really understand what they were saying because we wanted to have really awkward performances, but this because we had this idea that you could then see them and not see the performance and and just create all this awkwardness. Anyway, so in, in each section is in a completely different style, and I'm gonna sh- we're gonna show one of them, which is my favorite scene from it. Um, it's in the exact center of the film, and I don't think you really have to be set up. It has sex in it, so if that bothers you. Um, but it's not pornographic. It's not sexy. It's pornographic, but it's not sexy. All right. So uh, thanks a lot, Dennis. Thank you. And uh, we're going to end with this clip. So thank you all for being here. Um, we're going to do landscape suicide um, at the next screening. So come for that if you can. Thank you. Thank you very much. The Close Up from the Film Society Blinken Center is produced by Michael Odemark. Our opening music is by Steelism. You can subscribe to The Close-Up on iTunes and Stitcher. The Film Society of Lincoln Center is a non-profit arts organization based in New York City, supported by individuals just like you. Founded in 1969 to celebrate American and international cinema, the Film Society presents year-round programming recognizing established and emerging filmmakers, supporting important new work, and enhancing awareness, accessibility, and understanding of the moving image. To learn more about what we do and support the Film Society by becoming a member, visit filmlink.org, F-I-L-M-L-A-N-C.org. The Film Society of Lincoln Center. Film lives here.